I've said this many, many times. I'm 67 years old. I got busted when I was 33, got out of prison when I was 34. I've spent the first 33 years of my life, Mario, because everything was about Mike Rouse. Everything I did, what kind of great car can I have? How much money can I have in the bank? How big can I, house can I get? Uh, how can I have the prettiest girlfriend? How can I have the most success, the, the best title? How can I have all the, the things that society depicts as, as successful? Going to prison put me on a whole other plane and level. And I realized that the rest of my life I wanted to spend giving back because doing that is so much easier than trying to be somebody that you're really not. And so 33 years, basically the first half of my life was all about me. And since I was released from prison on February the 27th of 1987, everything's been about everybody else. Now, I can't say about every decision I've made and every action I've done, but for the most part, my life now is spent trying to give back to other people. That's Mike Rouse. And this is the Morning Shakeout Podcast. Hey, what's going on, everybody? I'm your host, Mario Fraioli, and my guest this week is Mike Rouse. Mike's a close friend of mine. I've known him for the past 10 years and helped him edit and publish his first book called Zero to 60. And he's got an incredible story that I'm excited for him to share with all of you. I don't even know where to begin when describing this man. Mike, who is 67 years old, started running in the mid 80s while he was in prison, where he served 14 months of a five-year sentence for possessing cocaine with an intent to sell. That experience behind bars changed his life for the better and led him down a path of running and giving back to the communities and causes that mean so much to him. As a runner, Mike has done more crazy stuff than anyone I've ever known, which is saying a lot. Over the last 33 years he's been involved in the sport, Mike has run over 130,000 lifetime miles. He's completed 261 marathons, 34 50K races, 79 races that were over 50 miles but less than 100, 40 100 milers and or 24 hour runs, 12 Ironmans, and six Ultramans, where he's a three-time age group world champion. One of the coolest things about Mike is that he regularly uses his running as a vehicle to bring awareness and raise money for causes and organizations he believes in, like the Blazeman Foundation for ALS, the Boot Campaign, the Navy SEAL Foundation, and others. This is a long conversation, folks, the longest one I've ever recorded for the podcast to date, but I promise you that you'll want to listen to it until the very end. It's full of incredible stories and numerous examples of inspiration. Mike told me about overcoming cocaine addiction and discovering distance running while he was behind bars, getting into the specialty running industry, an industry he still works in not long after he got out of prison, why he's comfortable being alone with his own thoughts and has never listened to music while on a run, the link between substance addiction and ultra running, his keys to staying healthy and motivated at the age of 67, what he means when he says to be somebody and give people roses while they're living, and a lot more couple quick programming notes before we get into this one. First, I'm taking a little break from work the next three weeks and episode 125 of the podcast won't drop until Monday, September 7th. So you have no excuse not to get through this entire episode. And lastly, we don't have a sponsor for this week's episode. So if you'd like to support my work directly and help keep the morning shakeout sustainable for a long time to come, you can do so at themorningshakeout.com slash support. 
If you're already a patron or choose to become one, thank you so, so much for your generosity. All right, that is it for the introduction. Please enjoy my conversation with the one and only Mike Rouse. Mike Rouse, my dear, dear friend, and probably the craziest character that I know, it is a true pleasure to welcome you to the Morning Shakeout podcast. Mario, thank you for inviting me. It's a pleasure to be with you, and I love the introduction. That's that's just what I live for. (laughs) Well, a lot of people, myself included, they know you as an accomplished ultra-distance athlete, you're a running industry veteran, and probably most importantly, a Texan through and through. There you go. Let's start talking about how you got your start as a runner. Well, it goes back a few years in time, uh, actually 34 years in time. Uh, 1985, the end of 1985, November 22nd, uh, I was sentenced to five years in prison. Uh, uh, and it started my incarceration on January the 6th, uh, 2nd, 1986. Uh, so on January the 2nd, 1986, my, my life took a turn that I had never anticipated would ever happen. But uh, I'd been a cocaine addict uh, and was uh, very successful in my, my, as I'll call it, my prior life. Uh, and, uh, but I got involved in drugs and alcohol after divorce and kind of went off the deep end uh, and ended up going to prison for uh, 14 months on a five-year sentence. And it was there on the prison yard uh, in Arena, Oklahoma, on January the 16th, 1986, when I decided that I had to get my life back together and, and get healthy and get back on track. And I started running around the exterior uh, of the prison yard uh, during my time on the yard. And uh, I was told it was two, five laps was two miles. Uh, and so I set out to do those, those two miles and, and, and had to run and walk it. I couldn't even run two miles. Uh, I was so physically depleted. But I did it. Uh, it took me almost uh, 45, 50 minutes to do two miles uh, running and walking. Uh, but I did it, and it kind of set off a chain uh, of events in my life that kept me running. And fast forward, I've run a few more miles since then. <laughs> yeah, just just a few. Um, do you remember how you felt when you were putting those miles in around the prison yard? You know, Mario, that's that's one of the beauties uh, of looking back on my life as a runner is that I'll never forget that very first day because, again, I, I'd always I'd always been involved in sports and athletics. I was a high school, college, and and tried to turn pro golfer, so I'd always been involved in the sports world and was a very avid fan uh, of football, basketball, baseball, any kind of track and field, any any kind of sporting event. I was a fan of it, and so I always kind of saw myself as an athlete. Uh, and so when I thought about running those, that, that first day, uh, there on the prison yard, I thought, well, you know, two miles, it's not a big deal. Uh, I'm, I'm an athlete. I can do that. Uh, and yet I, I probably ran the first quarter of a mile and I had to stop and, and walk until I could get my breath back and start running again. And I just kind of went on and off like that. And so that very night I was laying on my bunk in my cell, my little 10 by 10 with my cellmate. And I'm looking up at the ceiling and, uh, my legs started to hurt. Uh, and I thought to myself, wow, that's interesting. You know, I just ran two miles and my legs are hurting, but it was a good pain. I'll never forget it. It, And it, it gave me some positive thinking because I thought, you know what, I'm doing something right instead of doing something wrong this time. I'm doing something that's healthy 
and can help get me back on the right track. And so uh, I got so excited about it that I went out and tried it again the next day and, and just kept on and on. But I'll never forget that night thinking to myself that it was the first time in a long time, several years that I'd done anything positive for myself. Uh, because of the drugs and alcohol that I've been using for several years, uh, I've been doing everything negative. And so it, it was a good feeling. I'll never forget it. Did you run every day for the rest of your sentence? Pretty close to it. I missed a day here or a day there. Uh, I was also on the prison uh, softball team. And we had softball teams from from the real world that would come in occasionally uh, under protection, but they would come in and would have softball tournaments. Uh, and so there was a weekend here and a weekend there that I'd be playing in a softball tournament, seven, six, seven games in a, on a day on Saturday or on a Sunday uh, that I might not run. Uh, but other than that, I ran every single day. That was my thing to do out on the yard. Some guys would lift weights, some would play handball, some would just sit there and, you know, smoke or talk or fight, you know, whatever happens on the yard of a penitentiary. But that was my thing to do every day. That was, that was just kind of my, my pleasure. Um, and so when I, when I walked out of there 14 months later, I was up to about six or seven miles a day. Um, but pretty close to seven days a week. How did it change you months later from that day that you took that first run around the yard, those two miles to when you left prison? I guess that one of the things that was so good for me was, of course, this is way back before cell phones and uh, uh, Walkman, Sony Walkmans, any of that kind of stuff. And we didn't have any of that stuff in there anyway. But, uh, you know, I, I learned how to run by listening to my body and just kind of understanding how I was feeling. You know, were my, were my feet sore? Were my knees sore? How were my calves? Were my quads tight? My hamstrings? So I, I, I learned how to listen to my body as I ran. And based upon my lungs and my heart rate and how I was breathing, uh, you know, I learned how I could go faster without, you know, killing myself and how I could just get into a slow, comfortable pace and just kind of find that comfort zone and, and hang in it. And so I, I learned a lot about running in the penitentiary that sometimes you don't learn now, you know, here we are in 2020 because we've got technology and we've got music going in our ears and, you know, we've got all these, you know, $150 shoes and great uh, apparel products that we use. You know, I'm, I'm in a... <laughs> I'm in khakis and a khaki shirt and in some, you know, hand-me-down running shoes. Uh, and so, you know, I didn't have the equipment to make be a runner. You know, I didn't have on nice running shorts and, and tops and, you know, $150 sneakers uh, or technologies telling me how far I'm going and how fast I'm running. All I had was my body to listen to and the fact that I was doing it, uh, uh, you know, at a comfortable pace. So I learned a lot about how to run and, and how not to run. In a lot of ways, it strips it right down to its essence. Exactly. One of the things that, that I've kind of taken now, and now that I've been running for 34 years, been involved in the running business for quite some time, uh, trained a lot of folks to run marathons or just 5Ks or, or lose weight, whatever. I've tried to influence them to learn how to run within themselves and not just have music going in their ears, you know, when they're so they're not paying any attention to how their body feels, but to truly listen to your body and learn how to run and find a pace that's comfortable and kind of sit into it and, 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 and learn that way. Uh, and, and it also taught me how to, to run and not be bored. 
You know, so many people tell me today that when they run for anything over 30 minutes, they just get bored as heck. Uh, I can run for 24 hours and never get bored. <laughs> Crazy as that's going to sound to most people. But I think part of that's because I do have such a passion because it, it kind of saved my life when I was in this deep, dark hole of a penitentiary. It kind of gave me my life back. And so I feel like it, 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 I owe it something. I owe running something. And uh, it's made me healthy. Um, I, I literally haven't been to a doctor other than an annual physical in six years. I haven't taken so much as an Advil in over six years. Uh, and I've done a lot of miles, as you all know. Um, but, it, you know, it, I, I just learned the hard way uh, how to become a runner. And I've stuck with it for 34 years now. I think what's super interesting in your story is that running was this vehicle to turn your life around. You mentioned how you ended up in prison because you had problems with drugs and alcohol. In addition to the running itself, what other steps did you take to overcome those addictions? You know, I was fortunate in that, uh, you know, I, I hear a lot of people uh, that talk about, you know, when they were on, I was on cocaine and I had a very serious alcohol problem as well. Um, that when they come off of those things, that they have these these times of of drying out, or uh, I can't think of the word right now. But um, you know, when, when you're when you're getting off of a drug and your body just kind of re, 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 uh, rejects it, you know, and wants to go back to it to get some comfort and peace, uh, I never had that. Uh, so I, I got very lucky in that respect, but I think part of that's because of the running and part of it was because I wasn't incarcerated. I didn't have a choice to go out and get drugs like I had before. Uh, you know, I was cut off from all that stuff. And so, uh, that was a good thing in that, uh, I didn't have to make a decision whether I wanted to call my dealer up or go find somebody that had drugs to, to use because I'm, I'm incarcerated, locked down in a cell. Um, now don't get me wrong, I later found out over my months of being there that drugs were as available in prison as they were on the streets. Um, but that initial first few months, I didn't know anything about any of that. And so I was immediately just cut off um, and didn't have to worry about it. How were you able to get your sentence shortened from five years to 14 months? Well, pretty typically, uh, because our, our prisons are so overrun uh, with inmates, very few people serve their their, their full time. Uh, most people, if, as long as you stay on, on a good behavior, you don't do anything wrong. And I'd never been arrested in my life. I'd never had even so much as a traffic ticket uh, when I was 33 and got arrested. Uh, and so I had a good, clean record. I'd owned my own company. I had a college degree. I had all the right things that you need when the parole board looks at your sentence and says, you know, can we trust this guy once he's out? Uh, can he really make it uh, once he's released from prison? So I had all the positives going for me. Um, and, and they again, they want to, prisons being so overcrowded, they want to get rid of folks that are the least likely to uh, um, recommit a crime and, and come back to prison. So. Uh, 14 months was pretty typical. Uh, and again, I, I wasn't a big-time drug dealer. There was no guns involved. There was no uh, physical harm to anyone involved. It was strictly a guy that had a drug problem. Uh, and some people you know, have said to me, you know, that's a shame that you had to do it. Uh, I look at it as a positive and that I think it probably saved my life. 
because I was doing a thousand dollars a week uh, of cocaine and probably another hundred to two hundred dollars a week of alcohol. So uh, I literally was on a on a spiral down uh, that probably would have caught up with me sooner or later had I not been incarcerated. We're going to look ahead to the thirty four years after you got out of prison and where running has taken you. But I want to start by going back all the way to when you were arrested and learned that you were going to end up spending some time in jail. What was that moment like for you? Probably one of the most devastating days of my entire life. Uh, I've had a few others, uh, but none probably quite so much because not, not necessarily what happened to me, through this situation, Mario, but just as important, if not more so, is what it did to my family. Uh, I was divorced, and but I had two children from that previous marriage, and uh, they were young uh, and too young to understand what was going on, but I knew it was going to affect my relationship with them. Uh, but my mother and father, I was a business a partner with my dad in a construction company there in Abilene, Texas, where I'm from. And I knew uh, what it was going to do to my mom and dad and my sister, uh, the devastation that it was going to bring to them as well. And so, you know, it wasn't just about Mike Rouse going through this. It was about what I was doing to the people that loved me the most, um, that I was ruining a part of their lives. And, and um uh, it, that was what was hardest for me is I couldn't believe that I had done so much to damage my relationship with all those folks. What was your relationship like with your family before you got arrested? Did they know that you had problems with drugs and alcohol? Was it contentious at all or did this all catch them by surprise? They knew that I was drinking fairly heavily. They had no idea about the drugs. Uh, my mom and dad, I never saw my dad have a drink. Um uh, he he passed away when he was 86 years old several years ago. My mom passed away when she was 78. Um, both times, many years after I was released from prison. But uh, my mom, dad, and sister and her husband, all all four, I'd never seen any of them have a drink. So I was kind of the, the black sheep, I guess you could say. Uh, they knew I was drinking, they, but they had no idea about the drugs. Uh, that just wasn't a world that they understood at all. But, you know, we'd have... Uh, Thanksgiving dinner, you know, and I show up an hour late, uh, you know, intoxicated, probably high, but they didn't realize the highness. They, they understood the intoxication. But, you know, I, my mom would invite me over for dinner. I'd show up 30 minutes late, uh, you know, eat dinner and say, yeah, I got to go. Uh, so they knew things were going on in my life. They had no idea about the drugs, though. But it was, it was totally devastating to them. Uh, they thought that, you know, okay, Mike made a mistake. You know, they're going to give him probation. You know, he's going to have to change his life. They had no idea that I was going to be incarcerated and taken away for those 14 months. The 14 months that you were in prison, what was your relationship with your family like? It was good. It was actually better than I could have ever dreamed. Uh, they were very forgiving, very loving. Uh, they, they were sad. Uh, in fact, I, I asked them when I got you know, sent and knew I was going in. I said, you know, I don't really want you to come visit me in prison. I don't want you to see me like that. You know me as, you know, your son, your brother, uh, a guy who's made some mistakes, but, you know, deep down as a, as a good person. And you, I want you to remember me that way. I don't want you to see me behind bars, looking through a glass, you know, talking on a telephone. 
uh, as we see on the movies and, and TV, that's the, that's the real life of, of a person in prison. I didn't want them to see me like that. That said, they did come to see me one time after I'd been there for about 60 days. Um, they came up, uh, I believe it was an Easter Sunday, to be honest. I don't remember exactly, but, um, and as soon as my mom saw me, she began to cry and, and almost to hysterics because it just saddened her so much to see me. And I told him, I said, you know what? I don't know how much longer I'm going to be here, but I don't want you to come back. I don't want you to send me like this. And so they didn't. So I saw my mom and dad and sister that one time in those 14 months. I never got to see my children. Um, my uh, my ex and and we agreed. She and I agreed that it wasn't proper for them. They wouldn't have understood anyway. But I didn't want them to see me like that and have that remembrance of me. But we talked on the phone once a week, uh, and so I kept my relationship up with them that way. Um, talked to my mom and dad and sister on the phones, you know, often. But that was kind of the relationship. But they were very loving and kind and forgiving, which is one of the reasons why. When I got out, I was able to to find success again is because I didn't go into this deep depression about who I was or what I'd done, but I was uplifted by my family, first of all. Did you feel a renewed sense of purpose when you got out? Not at first, uh, because again, when you're, you know, laying on a bunk, you know, most of the day, you know, you get your little bit of yard time out there when you can go out and run and get some fresh air and get some some positive uh, feelings about yourself. But most of the time you're sitting in that 10 by 10, just thinking, reflecting, maybe reading a book, you know, but no TV, no, no internet, <laughs> none of that kind of stuff. And so you're just sitting there with a lot of time on your hands just to kind of think and reflect. And uh, I, the one thing I always remember thinking to myself was, you know, I, I, I blew it so badly that I went from having a college degree, owning my own construction company, successful in many aspects of my life, to being a guy who's now an ex-convict, who's probably going to work for minimum wage, having to give up all of his old friends and get new friends. And I'm probably going to live in some, you know, small house or mobile home and and just kind of survive the rest of my life. That's That was kind of a uh, a forecast of what I saw my life being. To rewind one more time, how did you get involved with drugs and alcohol in the first place? Given that you had an education, you had some stability in terms of a job, you were a star athlete, seemed like you had a lot of things going for you. Well, uh, that's kind of an interesting story in itself. I, I actually got married, uh, when I was 19, uh, after my sophomore year in college, uh, Shortly thereafter, had a couple of kids and kind of went through this, I hate to use this terminology, but kind of a very vanilla life uh, in that, you know, I got up, I went to work, I came home, I ate dinner, watched TV, played with the kids, went to bed, and got the next day and did the same thing. Uh, it was a great lifestyle in some respects, but it wasn't exciting and adventurous. Uh, but I went through it uh, for, for 10 years. And then when I got divorced, I kind of thought, you know what? I haven't done anything in my life. I've been married since I was 19. I'm now 30 years old. Uh, you know, I've had kids I've had to be home every night and take care of. And now I'm, I'm kind of freewheeling and carefree. Uh, I'm going to do something exciting. And so I got back involved in golf, met a few friends uh, at the country club. One of them was very successful uh, with several Learjets and uh you know, his, he and his father and another 
couple men owned a country club. And so I, I became a fixture there, went out and played golf every day after work and got invited to go on their jets and playing golf tournaments. And one day somebody opened up a bag of cocaine and spilled it on the table and said, hey, let's party. And not wanting to uh, be the Lone Ranger, I decided to give it a shot and just kind of fit in. And uh, with my personality of, you know, whatever you're going to do, do it full out. Take it to the max. Uh, I went from never having really drank in my life until to started drinking. And then when it, the first time I did a line of cocaine, it went from that to about, a, about $300 a week a habit pretty quickly. Uh, and within a year, I was up to $1,000 a week in cocaine. Uh, so it, it was a very, very uh, crazy lifestyle, but it picked up quick. Rewinding even further, did you always have that full-on personality from the time that you were a kid, or is that something that developed as you got older? I would say it really kind of developed more when I you know, got into my 20s. Uh, as a kid, my, you know, as long as I was living at home before I was married, my father was very, very conservative. Like I said, I've never seen him and my mom take a drink, uh, never heard him cuss, never heard, never saw him gamble. You know, none of the things that, you know, were wild and crazy and kind of adventurous and out there. He was just this very conservative guy, very successful home builder. But he got up every morning, ate breakfast, went to work, came home for lunch, went back to work, came home, had dinner, watched TV and went to bed. That was his life seven days a week. Uh, we ate every meal at home. So, you know, there was no real, you know, we didn't take trips, you know, uh, our trips were to see family, uh, you know, our kin folks, but we didn't, we didn't go to Disneyland. We didn't go to Six Flags. We didn't do all the stuff that, you know, wild and crazy and adventurous. We just, we did kind of the normal boring lifestyle, which there's nothing wrong with it. But as a young man, uh, you know, I, I kind of wanted to see the world and, and do something adventurous. And so uh, once I kind of went through this divorce uh, and was now free on my own, it, it just, it all hit me upside the head. Did you look up to your parents when you were a kid? I did. I had a lot of respect for my dad. I was, uh, I don't mean this in a harsh way towards him, but I was very, uh, uh, I, I wouldn't say scared of him physically, but I, very respectful of him. I know what you mean. I feel the same way about my dad. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and, and, and part of the reason why, not to go into great detail about it, but my dad uh, came from a family of 17 children in Kentucky. They had a tobacco farm. And uh, when he was 12 years old, his mom passed away and his father was legally 100% blind. And so when mom died, uh, my dad was the oldest son still at home. There were still 12 kids at home, but he was the oldest boy. He had four younger brothers and seven or eight younger sisters or, or girls, but girls at that time back in the 20s and 30s did not work outside the home. And so his dad came to him and said, son, you need to quit school and, and work the farm. You're now the manager of the farm. And so in the sixth grade at 12 years old, my dad quit school and never went back. And so he had a work ethic and a discipline uh, that was beyond reproach. And uh, he also grew up in a time back in the Depression when, you know, you did what, whatever dad said was right and you followed directions. Uh, and I was kind of brought up the same way. Whatever daddy said was the law of the land. And so if, if he told me to be home at nine o'clock, I was home at 8.59. <laughs> uh, and if he said, you can do this, you can't do that, I was yes, sir, no, sir. Uh, 
And so that's, that was just kind of uh, the discipline that I was used to. And so again, what, once I was married and kind of got away from that, I was a little freer, but then not as free as when I got divorced and was kind of like, now I'm my own man. When you got out of college, was it expected that you would work in the family construction business? It was. Uh, my dad offered me, uh, well, again, being being married at 19, uh, you know, I had two years of college left, and but you know, I had a wife to support. She was a she got a job as a school teacher. She was a year older than I was, and uh, but but you know, I had to make an income, and so even though I was on a college golf team with a full scholarship, uh, I started doing some construction projects, little rehab, remodeling jobs, rehab jobs, uh, with the understanding that once I graduated, I was going to go in with my dad as a custom home builder, and again, he told me that that's what I was going to do, <laughs> and so I did it. Uh, I never necessarily liked it. I was not into construction. Uh, it wasn't fun for me, but it was expected of me to do it. And it was almost like, you know, when he was 12 years old and his dad said, son, you're quitting school to run the farm. Uh, I was 21, but graduating from college. And he said, son, uh, you're going into business with me. And so I said, yes, sir. <laughs> yeah. You're just not going to question it. At I'm that not point. going to question his authority. So, but it was never a fun time for me. I, I was never, it was never enjoyment, uh, but it was a good career. I made good money. We were successful, well-known in Abilene and, you know, it brought me, it brought me success. In addition to your parents, I know there was another influential man in your life when you're growing up. His name is John Bailey. Do you tell me a little bit more about him? Yeah. Uh, I got some, some, Great understanding and, and knowledge from that man. John Bailey was similar to my dad. Uh, he was a little bit older than my dad. Um, but he was a construction foreman for my father and I. My father for 40 years, but but my father and I together for 20, 20 years. So uh, my dad had been in the construction business for 20 years when he and I went in together. But um, John uh, had a high school diploma, but he had worked in construction all of his life. And was my my dad's foreman, and uh, made my dad a lot of money. And so when I was sixteen, uh, my dad said, "Then you know you're going to go to work every summer. You're going to work for, during the summer, during holidays, weekends, and every time that you know that opportunity arose as a as a teenager, he put me on a job with John. And uh, you know John would teach me stuff. He he, you know, knowing that I was Reuben, Reuben's my dad, knowing that I was Reuben's son, he would take extra time and effort to make sure that I understood the business. He knew that someday I was going to come into the construction business with my dad. And so he would spend time explaining why things were done a certain way and why it shouldn't be done another way. And just somebody that I grew to have a great respect for. He always treated me as if I was, you know, a college educated, uh, 35 year old man and here I was a 16 year old boy <laughs> you know he had a lot of respect for me uh just because of my position as Reuben's son and so fast forward we we uh we uh I graduated college and went into partnership with my dad and uh I couldn't tell you the year that it was or how long but we'd, we'd probably been in partnership for five or six years and we had another uh, man and his son that were foremans on another job of ours, but John was the head guy. He was the main man. And the two, the father's son had come to my dad and I and asked us for a raise. They said that they could get a, a job for another construction company making more money, but they wanted to stay with us. But in order for us to keep them, they were, we were going to have to match the other guy's offer. 
And so we called John and said, hey, can you come by the office? We want to talk to you. And so John came over the next morning and we explained the situation that this father-son had, had made this kind of a challenge to us to give them more money. And we said, you know, John, because you're the foreman over them, in order for us to pay them that money, we would have to give you a raise. He was making $5 an hour at the time and they were making $4 an hour and they were asking for six. And so we said, John, if you think that's proper and we need to keep them, we'll give them the six, but that means we're going to give you seven or seven fifty an hour. And I'll never forget. Uh, he looked down at the floor for a few minutes and raised his head up and looked my, my dad and I in the eye and he said, guys, let them go. He said, you're overpaying me right now. There's no way you can pay me more money. I won't accept it. He said, you let them go. Keep me where I'm at salary-wise, and I'll take up the slack. I'll do the job they were doing too. Wow. And talk about something hitting you upside the head. When a man turns down extra income and offers to work harder for what you're already paying him, I gained so much respect for John Bailey that I could not believe that anybody could have that kind of character and loyalty. And again, it just kind of it rocked my world. And, uh, you know, here we are. This, that was probably back in 1978, 79, somewhere in there. Here we are 40 plus years later. And I will never forget John. Uh, I dedicated my book. Part of my dedication was to John Bailey because of that, that trust that I found in him. I appreciate you sharing that. How often do you think of him and the example he set for you? Anytime I'm in a rough spot uh, and think, you know, I, sh I should get paid more for this. I should, shouldn't have to work so hard. You know, whatever kind of a negative connotation I might think, John Bailey comes to my mind. And uh, cool, a cool side story to that, Mario, is that uh, my son, I've told that story when he was about 12 or 13 years old. And, uh, you know, I, I told him kind of the same way that John told uh, my dad and I, I said, you know, son, if you've ever learned anything from me, learn from this, this, this story. And I told him about John Bailey. And about uh, 10 years ago, my son now is 42 years old. When he was about 30, 32 years old, he had worked his way up to be president of a software company. And something came up about, you know, some of his employees. And he said, you know, dad, the example that I always use when, I, when I'm having issues with one of my guys and they're wanting more money or they're wanting a raise or they don't want to work as hard as I tell them the story of John Bailey. So he said, almost every employee that works under me, 200 men and women, know the story of John Bailey from Abilene, Texas. And he said, they've never seen him. They've never heard of him. They know nothing about him other than the fact that he was a man of conviction, loyalty, and faithfulness. Well, that's an incredible story. I appreciate you sharing it here with me, but also all of my listeners who now know the story <laughs> of John Bailey and hopefully can find a way to apply it to their own lives. Yep. Let's fast forward to when you got out of prison. What does your relationship look like with your kids? I mean, they're still very young. They're too young to understand that you're even in prison, but I guess when they were old enough for you to tell them and share that part of your story. What was that like for you? Well, like you said, Mario, when I first was paroled out, they were still too young to tell the story to. Uh, they did have an understanding. My wife had, uh, ex-wife and I had kind of given them a, 
what I would call a white lie. We never told them what was going on at the time. We just said, you know, dad's working up in Oklahoma and can't be home for a while. Uh, that sufficed to them. Uh, they, again, they didn't really have an understanding. But when they were about, uh, when Ryan was about 12, my son and my daughter was about nine, uh, Lacey, uh, they had come in for the weekend to see me and I took them to a park and we played for a while and did various games and things. And then I just sat them down on the picnic table there in the park. And I said, Hey, I got to tell you something about dad. And I relayed the story about what had happened and what I had done wrong and how I had gone to prison and paid the price for it. And I said, you now know me as a man who's kind of back on his feet and doing the right thing. But there was a time when dad did the wrong thing and made a mistake, but, but I, I paid for it. And I will never forget. My son was pretty quiet, uh, which he always is. He's, He's, uh, he's not a big talker. Normally, he's a very thought-out businessman kind of an attitude. But my little daughter looked at me at nine years old, and she said, Dad, it's okay. You're my daddy, and I love you, and I forgive you. And, you know, ever since, it's, it's, been, a, it's been an um, unbelievable relationship. Uh, my son and daughter and I are both very close. My, my daughter has two kids. My son has twin grandsons. So I've got four grandkids, and we're all very close. And I live a mile and a half, two miles from them, see them on a regular basis. I get to go to all their sports games and, you know, see them for different meals and holidays and things. And, you know, it's just been great. Uh, and I think part of that is because I've done the right thing since I was released. But a bigger part of that is because I'm fortunate to have two kids that uh, that are just wonderful human beings uh, and that are loving and kind and forgiving. When you got out of prison, how did you think about the trajectory of your life at that point? You discovered running, something that helped you to find yourself and to get yourself right. But you know, professionally, personally, when you walk back out into the world, where do you go? Well, it uh, it became evident, and I won't go into the story because it involves people, and I don't want I don't want to share too much of that story. But I, I, you know, I, when I paroled out, I went back home to you know Abilene, Texas, and I had a lot of friends there. Uh, many of them were drug friends. Uh, and because of my success in the home building business, I knew almost everybody in Abilene, Texas, it seemed. And I had a feeling that everybody kind of knew my story because it was front page headlines and on the news before I was sent to prison. And so every time I walked into a grocery store those first few days or weeks, you know, I'd see a face that I knew. And I, immediately inside, I would, I would put a smile out there. But inside, I'm thinking, oh, my gosh, they're thinking, oh, there's that guy that just pulled out of prison you know, he's back home, wondering when he's going to do it again, wondering when he's going to mess up again. And it was very, uh, it was very hard on me mentally and emotionally. Uh, and so I, I determined very quickly that I needed to get away from that and, and start completely over somewhere. Uh, my dad had retired while I was in prison, so I didn't have the construction company to fall back on. Financially, I had I'd wrecked myself uh, when I went to prison. I'd filed bankruptcy and because I'd lost everything uh, trying to fight my case. And my construction company, again, had just gone to, to nothing. And so my dad had retired. I, I, I don't want to get back into construction anyway. I'm, I'm nervous about living in Abilene and having people stare at me and talk behind my back. And so I, I moved to Dallas, Texas. My sister and her husband uh, gave me a car 
they had an extra car that they were about to sell and they let me borrow that car uh, and, and just drive it. And I, and I came to Dallas and started over. And uh, uh, life changed tremendously because nobody in Dallas knew me. I really didn't have anybody here that I knew. It was a totally clean, fresh start. Uh, and, and I put my life back together, uh, started a, uh, a nonprofit organization working with ex-convicts, got involved in the running business, um, and just got extremely lucky. Uh, and, and I can't imagine what would have happened had I stayed in Abilene, but, but coming here, I, I got involved in the running business, starting with a, a running specialty store here, um, uh, and worked my way up to be store manager and then got on the wholesale side and, uh, it's been 34, 33 years of greatness. <laughs> on the running side of things, how are you thinking about, this thing that you discovered in prison when you got out? Was it something you knew was going to be a part of your life from that day forward? Did you have an interest in racing? I'd love to dig into that a little bit. You know, I, I'll be honest with you, Mario. I didn't know anything about racing. I'd watched the Olympics. You know, I, I had my best friend in high school or one of my best friends in high school was a miler on the track team. I thought he was crazy. You know, why would you want to go out and run as hard as you can for four plus minutes? You know, uh, and and sweat and out of breath and pained, you know, I, I was used to walking around a golf course for three or four hours, you know, having fun, seeing a beautiful scenery uh, in, in kind of in a comfort zone. I couldn't understand it. Well, going to prison, I got into the running thing, but it wasn't fast. I mean, it was just, you know, it was, it was getting healthy, it was getting my heart rate up, it was getting physically fit. It wasn't about racing. Uh, so once I got out, I never really thought about running a 5k or 10k for quite some time. But then once I got a job working in the running store, uh, and got around runners and I'm hearing these people talking about, you know, what they just ran last weekend at the, the symphony 10k or the farmer's ranch 5k or whatever the race was, I thought, God, that sounds like fun. You know, and these, these people are excited about it. It was almost like somebody, you know, saying they shot a, got a hole in one in a golf course. You know, uh, they were talking about the excitement that they got in, in these races and winning their age group. I thought, you know, I'm an athlete. I'm, I'm, uh, I'm a competitor. I, I'm going to get into this thing and start running races. And so I jumped in and did my first one. And uh, it was pretty horrible, to be honest with you. <laughs> what race uh, was it? It was a little race. I went back home to Abilene. Uh, my mom and dad had invited me back for the weekend. I went back and uh, I ran a little 5K and uh, – 28 minutes and some odd seconds, about nine minutes a mile, which isn't horrible, but as a guy who's a competitor, and I was like number 35 in my age group, <laughs> not in the race, in my age group, and I thought, wow, I, I thought I might win the race when I started, and I'm th number 35 in my age group, and the other thing that was uh, kind of amusing to me, well, it wasn't amusing, I shouldn't say, it was, it was, uh, frustrating was, you know, it about a mile and a half, two miles in. And again, at the time I'm 34 years old, I've got 60 year old men and 40 year old women and 12 year old little boys that are running by me, passing me. And I'm here, I'm thinking that I'm this virile 34 year old guy and I've got old men, old women and young kids that are all beating me. And it was, it was, it, it just kind of set me up. Uh, 
to what later came to be my, my real passion, which was running in ultras. So it lit some kind of fire under you. It lit a big time fire under me because I just said to myself, you know, that's not going to happen. It would have been like me going to the tee box when I was in college thinking, gosh, I hope I can play 18 holes and not, you know, tire out. I, I went to a college golf tournament to win the tournament, you know, and now I'm going to a, a 5K race, uh, just trying to finish it and, you know, not even thinking about winning, but it, it set my soul on fire. So what happens from there? Like what happens, like, say the next day or in the coming weeks? Uh, the next few months and weeks, uh, you know, I, I had so much fun at that first 5K in Abilene. I came back and started looking into it. Uh, you know, the story that I was working through, uh, Luke's Locker, you know, was a, kind of a race central. That's back when running specialty stores weren't as popular as they are now. There weren't so many. But they had all these brochures about different 5Ks and 10Ks and different race distances that were coming up. And so I'd see one that kind of sounded interesting and you know, it was all about the T-shirt, you know, getting these cool T-shirts with, you know, nice designs on them and being able to wear those to work or wear those around and kind of strut my stuff. And so I kind of started doing it a little bit more regularly and I kind of worked my way up to a 10K and then to a, I'll never forget doing my first 15K uh, out at White Rock Lake. Uh, and then I, my half marathon and, uh, at the finish line of that first half marathon, this is probably back in about 1988, 1st of 1988, uh, they were handing out brochures to everybody that crossed the finish line about the Dallas White Rock Marathon. And I thought, hey, I just ran half of that. I can double this. And so I took a brochure and entered the race in December of 1988. I ran my first marathon and had the time of my life. I thought I was king of the world because I just run 26.2 miles. And, uh, it just, it just, again, it became such a passion for me, uh, that one thing led to another, to another, to another, and the world became my oyster. I don't want to skip ahead too far, but that feeling you just described where you felt like you were on top of the world and you had really accomplished something. I mean, knowing you as I do, I know you have spread that to so many other people, countless other people. When did that light bulb go off in your head when you said to yourself, hey, I want to take this feeling that I just had and let other people experience it for themselves? Uh, <clears throat> to be honest with you, it didn't happen right then, Mario. <laughs> I, I was just so proud that I'd finished a marathon that, again, I thought I was pretty special. But I enjoyed it so much that I thought, you know, I've got to do another one of these because I think I can get faster. And so uh, I entered another one, the Cowtown Marathon, which was like 60 days later, which, you know, people were saying, hey, you're crazy. You should give your body time to recover. But, I, you know, I was, I was in such a euphoric, you know, feeling that from December, the whatever it was, 10th till the middle of February, 60 days, I thought, you know, I'll be recovered. I'll be ready to go. And I went out and I did the Cowtown Marathon and just had a blast doing that one. And then it, uh, I qualified for Boston. Uh, at Caltown, uh, and in April, I went to Boston Marathon and ran it for the first time. And that's when it really kind of hit me because here's the granddaddy of them all. Here's a guy who never in his life had run up until two years ago, uh, and now I'm running in one of the greatest races, uh, running races in the world. 
And I just thought, you know, this is something really, really special. Um, and I came home and had a friend of mine, uh, Ed Jackson, who was about 55 years old. And he called me and said, hey, how did Boston go? I want to hear all about it. So we go to lunch. And as we're sitting there having lunch, uh, I'm, you know, I'm, my chest is all puffed out and I'm bragging about how I just ran the Boston Marathon and oh, how my time was and all this kind of stuff. And he's sitting there. He's not saying a word. He's just listening to me. And, and when I get fun, he says, well, Mike, I got a challenge for you. And I said, what's that, Ed? He said, when you become a real man, come run my, my 50 mile race with me. <laughs> and I said, what do you mean 50 miles? That, there's no such a thing. Marathon is the, it's the ultimate. He said, well, no, when I turned 55 years ago, I, I went out on my birthday and with several of my friends to run 50 miles to celebrate 50 years of living. And I said, oh my gosh, that sounds crazy. He says, well, like I said, I, I'm not trying to challenge you too harshly, but you know, when you become a man, come run 50 with me. Well, that's all it took, right? And so uh, I asking, you know, what, what the training looked like. He told me about it. And uh, f fast forward six months later, I ran the, the Jackson 5.0 uh, as my first ultra marathon. And was that just a very different experience for you? Take us through that first ultra because you've run many since. <laughs> I've run many since. Uh, well, uh, we haven't gotten into it yet, uh, but I actually, in the process of, of this year or so of being out of prison, I also started a nonprofit uh, here in Dallas called Exodus, which was a nonprofit 501c3 working with ex-convicts and their families. And so one of the things that I thought about when I was preparing for this 50-miler was to do it as a fundraiser for this, this nonprofit. Because as you can imagine, uh, being a part of a nonprofit, raising money for ex-convicts is not a very easy thing to do. Not everybody is excited about giving money to help someone who just walked out of the penitentiary. And so I thought, you know, this is one way that I can do it, uh, do something physical uh, that's fun for me, and at the same time, do something that's financially good for this organization. And so I, I sent out a, a, a letter to all the different people who are involved as volunteers in this program that we had we'd pulled in so far. And was able to do my first 50 miler in eight hours and 34 minutes. Uh, but we raised about $12,000 that day. And I was pretty excited about that because our annual uh, budget was 100000 And I raised 12000 in one day. So uh, that's kind of what set my soul on fire to start using ultras as a vehicle to raise money for organizations. It's interesting to hear you describe all that all the way back to the lunch that you had with your friend and he tells you, hey, when you're ready to, to be a real man, step on up to the ultra distance. Because, <laughs> I mean, knowing you as I do, I see where those seeds have grown. And it's, it's pretty incredible to hear you describe them like literally getting planted. Right. It, uh, you know, I can look back on it now, Mario, again, uh, 30 plus years ago. And I can remember that conversation like it was yesterday with Ed Jackson. Uh, I was, I remember the restaurant. It was at a Dixie House restaurant eating chicken fried steak. <laughs> but it had such an impact on my life uh, that he would challenge me that way and that 
fortunately for me, I was able to respond to it. Uh, and the positives that have come out of that have far, far exceeded what I could have ever dreamed. Does the charity that you started still exist? It does. Exodus uh, is still in existence. Uh, I actually go over there occasionally. Uh, again, I started it in 1987, shortly after coming to Dallas, uh, and was kind of the uh, director of it, uh, working with the running business, but still I was director of the nonprofit for about 10 years, and it came to a place that had grown to a point that I could no longer do everything. And so I handed it off and, and kind of stepped away from it. And the way I've kind of uh, described it, it was almost like when you have a child and, uh, you know, you raise them up for the first five or six years. And then one day you take them to school for the first day and you walk them into the classroom, uh, hand them off to the teacher. And you kind of say, OK, the, my child is now your, your student, it's your pupil. And, you know, you kind of have to let the teacher take it from there. And so Exodus was kind of that for me. Uh, those first few years, I kind of helped grow it and nurture it. I helped design the program for it, of, of giving these men and women and their families uh, an aftercare program and housing for six months after they released from prison, giving them counseling and different things to kind of get them back into the society. Uh, but once I handed it off to the new folks, I said, you know what, I got to walk away from it. I'm not going to tell you how to do your business any more than I would tell that teacher how to teach their class. And so, but I, it's exciting for me to know that now 33 years later, that program is still is, is still is in existence, helping families uh, reintegrate with each other and reintegrate, reintegrate back into society. Uh, recidivism rate in Texas is 77%, which means 77 out of 100 men or women that come out of our prisons go back within one year because they've committed another crime or broke their pro parole. Uh, and so Exodus has kept the records of the different families that have come through there, and, and less than 1% of those families over 33 years have gone back to prison. Wow. So it's a pretty incredible uh, organization. Proud to have been a part of it. You're an example of someone who served his time and since you've gotten out have been able to reform your life. But as you've alluded to in this conversation, there is definitely a stigma involved with ex-convicts who are yep. now out in the world. What do you say to anyone who is listening to this and listening to your story, but just can't like shake the fact that, you know, you had to do time and that there are several other people who have followed, you know, similar paths and they have, you know, served time for their transgressions, but they are able to reform themselves and exist as a functioning and contributing member to society. Well, you know, when I was director of Exodus, I, I, I went around two or three times a week, uh, usually at night, uh, speaking to different uh, churches or foundations or uh, I wouldn't say social clubs, but, you know, Lions Club, Rotary Clubs, that kind of thing, trying to raise money for these organizations. And the one thing that I would always stress uh, to anyone that was listening to me was that you know, we can say that, you know, that person doesn't deserve a second chance. They made a mistake. They broke, they committed a crime. They broke the law. They've been incarcerated. Now we're supposed to try to help them. But my response to that typically was, or my admonition to them was, 98% of the men or women who go to prison, 98% will parole out. I mean, we hear about life without parole all the time. 
But 98% of the people who go to prison will someday parole out. So do you want to be somebody who sits on the, on the sideline and says, you know what? They better do the right thing or else. Or do you want to help them? If they're going to come out anyway, are they better off trying to make it on their own? Or are they better off getting support from society? Because let's face it, uh, once you're paroled out from prison and they hand you a $200 check and say, good luck, how long is $200 going to last? We all know that doesn't last very long. Uh, that's a few meals and, and a couple of tanks of gas and, and you, you're pretty much done. So if we don't help them find jobs and get their life back together and become functioning adults and uh, fun functioning citizens of our cities, uh, we're, we're setting ourselves up for failure as, as a society. Uh, and so, you know, these guys and gals are going to be living in our neighborhoods, whether we like it or not. So let's help them out and make them productive citizens again. Because um, I can I can assure you, when they're paroled out and that $200 is gone, that old drug dealer that they used to know is more than willing to give them money to, to do a drug deal. Uh, you know, be, be a carrier, be a mule, as, as they call it. Uh, an, another guy may be willing to give him 50% of doing a, a robbery at a 7-Eleven or, or something. You know, people are willing to help them out financially if it aids them as well. So... They, we don't want them doing that. We want them to become productive citizens of society. And so we as citizens need to do something, developing programs to help these guys when they come out of prison. Did you ever have any fear that you would regress or fall into your old bad habits? Uh, I did not. Uh, because I, kind of going back to my family, uh, Mario, and seeing the pain and suffering and agony that I put upon my mom and dad, I will never forget uh, on January the 2nd, 1986, when I was leaving the house, my mom and dad's house, to go to, my dad and, and brother-in-law were driving me to the prison to, you know, self-report. Uh, I was allowed that opportunity. As I came out of the house and got into the car and as we backed out of the driveway, my mom was hysterical, standing in the garage, watching us drive away. And she collapsed onto the, the floor of the garage, uh, just in, in massive tears. And I'll never forget crying and thinking to myself, my God, what have you done to your mother that you've broken her heart? Uh, I can't do that again. And even though she's been gone for 20 plus years now, uh, that image is plastered in my mind as if it was this morning. And so I, I've, I've never had the desire to use drugs again. I've been drug-free. Uh, since February the 27th of 1984, I've never used another, I've never done another line of cocaine. So it's been 36 years. Um, I, that will never happen again, I can assure you. So I've, I've, I've been able to overcome it. But again, I know a lot of guys that haven't. But part of that's because I had that family that supported me. Uh, I had a college education, uh, you know, to help me in, in this life. Uh, I, I had a resume of, of jobs on my own construction company, how to run a business. So I had a lot of positives that most of these guys don't have, but I, I, I've never had a desire to go back to it. Do you feel a sense of responsibility to help other people who are struggling with their own issues now when you come across them? I certainly do. Um, I, uh, I've said this many, many times. I'm 67 years old. Um, I got busted when I was 33, got out of prison when I was 34. Um, 
I've spent the first 33 years of my life, Mario, because everything was about Mike Rouse. Everything I did, what kind of great car can I have? How much money can I have in the bank? How big can I house can I get? Uh, how can I have the prettiest girlfriend? How can I have the most success, the, the best title? You know, uh, how can I have all the, the things that society depicts as, as successful? Uh, going to prison put me on a whole other plane and level. And I realized that the rest of my life I wanted to spend giving back because doing that is so much easier than trying to be somebody that you're really not. And so 33 years, basically the first half of my life was all about me. And since I was released from prison on February the 27th of 1987, everything's been about everybody else. Now, I can't say about every decision I've made and every action I've done, but for the most part, uh, my life now is spent trying to get back to other people. Well, having known you the last 10 years, I think you certainly live that out in so many different ways, just through what you do, not only as a runner and using that as a vehicle to bring awareness to different things, but what you've done in the running industry, both you know as a rep for different brands and then also in your local communities in Texas. So on behalf of all the people that you've touched, I'd like to just thank you for it. Thank you. I appreciate that very much. Let's go back to when you moved to Dallas, Texas. You start working for a local running store there. I believe it's Luke's Lockers. Correct, correct. me if I'm wrong. Yes. You're in this specialty retail store. You got runners coming in. You've started you know, racing. It's now part of your lifestyle. How are you thinking about your future? You're in your mid-30s at that point. You are divorced from your wife, but you still got two kids. Like, How are you thinking about the rest of your life at that point? Or are you thinking about the rest of your life at that point? You know, to be honest with you, I, I, I didn't have any expectations because, I, you know, everything was so unsure because everything was so different. I mean, again, I, I'd kind of had this life that was kind of almost say, uh, I hate to use this word, but almost predestined that I was going to, you know, go to college, uh, go in a construction company with my dad, get married, have kids, have this certain lifestyle. And then all of a sudden, in 1986, everything changed, 100% changed. And that, that predestined life that I thought that I was going to be living was now like just a dark hole. And so I had no expectations because I knew, I knew construction was over. I knew all my old friends were, were over. I knew that everything was kind of, kind of a gray area in front of me. Um, and so I just thought, you know, live it a day at a time and see where it, see where it takes you. And so that's what was so cool about going to work um, during that running store is that when I walked in and just said, you know what, I've, I've owned my own company, but I've got a criminal record. Uh, but I just need to start over and I, love, I have a passion for running and I, I want to be around it. Seems like a cool uh, industry to be in. And they gave me a job. And my first job in a running store, swear to you, was as a greeter at the front door. I started off at 30, 34 years old as a greeter in the front of a Luke's Locker store. People would come in to shop and buy shoes and apparel. I knew nothing about that kind of stuff. I knew you had to wear running shoes. I knew that you bought running shorts and tops. But I didn't know fabrics. I didn't know technologies. I didn't know anything about that, you know? Uh, and so I started off as a greeter. And... Uh, uh, you know, I would just say, hi, welcome into Luke's. How can we help you today? 
You know, I need new shoes. I need some new shorts. You know, and I'd point them in the right direction. Uh, but I, I literally didn't have any, any clue in the back of my mind that someday I would be working in this industry for 30-something years. It, it didn't even dawn on me. And I, and I certainly had no idea that I was going to be doing the running that I'm doing now. I thought I was a 5K, 10K guy. <laughs> <laughs> that's pretty. That's that's pretty funny knowing knowing you now because 5K, 10K is like not even your warm up these days. I, I wouldn't even go out for three miles. It's <laughs> it's too short. I wouldn't break a sweat. <laughs> I'm kidding, but it's, I would. It's funny to hear you describe your initial job at Luke's Locker as a greeter because you are a very like outgoing person. So <laughs> it does seem like a, a very natural fit on some level. Right, right. I've never met a stranger in my life. I meet people on elevators all the time, and, and you know, and in a four four flight or four floor ride, uh, and you know, I know where they're from and what they do for a living. Uh, my dad kind of taught me that. My dad never met a stranger either, and uh, you know, I, I learned from example. And so, uh, I. I I just always, I love to talk to people. I love telling stories and I love to know about what people's thoughts and dreams are. So yeah, it was a perfect job for me, to be honest. And you were at Luke's until I think like 1995 or 1996, if I'm not mistaken. How did your career career there evolve? Well, you know, I went from being a greeter uh, there at first to, you know, they, they allowed me to get into the sales floor. Uh, couple of different people. One was the, the footwear manager, a guy named Terry, who's still a very, very, very dear friend of mine. Um, he taught me all about the shoes, top to bottom, taught me about durometers and, you know, uh, dual density. And we didn't talk about midsole heights and drops back in those days. But, you know, we just talk, he taught me about shoes and, and how they're built and constructed and what, what differentiates from brand to brand. And another guy that was... Uh, uh, named Andrew, who worked in the apparel department, talked about different fabrics and different fits and, you know, all those kinds of things. And so, I, but I, I had this thirst for running because I loved it so much that I wanted to know. Uh, and I wanted to to understand how the running business worked because going back to my construction days, uh, my dad started me off when I was a teenager, as I said earlier, uh, going out and working on, on the job site, you know, not sitting in an office doing estimating or paying bills, but he, he started me out, you know, d- driving nails and, you know, digging ditches and cleaning up, you know, uh, around the construction sites. So I literally it, in the trenches, literally in the trenches, uh, and, you know, building cabinets and hanging doors, you know, d- d- whatever you do in a construction company. And I wanted to know that because I didn't want a, a customer coming up and saying, if I move this wall over, you know, or if you move this wall over two feet, what's it going to cost me? You know, I, I wanted to be able to give them an answer, you know, and say it's going to cost you X amount of dollars because we've got to do this, this, and this. So now that I'm in this other business, constru- uh, the running shoe business, I wanted to be able, when a customer came in and said, well, why would I buy this brand over this brand or that style over this style? I wanted to be able to explain it to them because to me it was very important to know your product um, because it, it's never good if the consumer knows more than you do as the the, the supplier. Uh, and so I learned the business from the very bottom up and I worked there for a few months and uh, the owner of, of Luke's, uh, Don Lucas, uh, 
was a senior partner in a huge law firm here in Dallas. And uh, Don' nickname was Luke Luke uh, when he was in college from his sports days. And so that's how Luke Slocker became uh, who it is. Uh, and so I'll never forget one day I was on the sales floor uh, doing some sales, uh, trying to sell. And Don came by me and said, hey, Rouse, come up to my office. I want to talk to you. I had only been there for a few months. And my first thought was, oh, gosh, you know, he knows about my criminal record. And he's thinking, you know, I've got this guy working in my store who's been to prison. And I got a cash register over there and, you know, thousands of dollars worth of product, you know. And I'm thinking he's maybe he's letting me go. And uh, I walked in and, and sat down in his office and he asked me how things were. And I tried to be as positive as I could, but you know, I was very fearful. And after about five minutes of dis discussing back and forth, he looks at me out and he says, well, Rouse, I just want you to know something. <clears throat> I've owned Luke's for about 22 years now. And uh, I've had a lot of store managers, but no one has ever been as good as you are at, at trying to please the customer. He said, you have an energy about you. You have a passion about running like I've never seen. And he says, would you, would you consider being my store manager? And it totally blew me away. Because when I walk in there just a few minutes earlier thinking it might be my last day on the job. I've now gotten a promotion and I'm going to be managing this store. And uh, it, it just kind of set me on a, a whirlwind uh, of emotion of, of how great the running business was. And uh, it renewed my passion for it or, or grew my passion for it, I should say. Was it at that point that you knew this was going to be a career path for you, meaning the industry itself? Yes. Yes, I, I, I'd already come to love it so much, not just the physical part that I'd found in prison and then, you know, the, uh, the thrill and excitement that I received running that first 5K race. And then my, you know, I hadn't even done a marathon at this point, uh, still hadn't run a marathon. But, I, but, you know, I'd made this progression of just loving the sport for what it did to me physically, to loving the excitement that it brought into my life. And now, now it's given me a career opportunity that I just, I wanted to be a part of it. And uh, again, I still didn't know where it was going to take me, but I knew it was something that I wanted in my life. Where did you go when you transitioned away from Luke's in the mid-90s? Well, I... Um, I'd come to a place working there that I realized how much fun I had working in a running store. And I thought, someday I want to own my own running store. How cool would it be to have your own store? And so I started thinking about that. But, you know, the Lucases had three sons that were all younger than me, who were all now involved in the business in different positions and levels. Uh, but they were all several years younger than me. And so as I'm thinking about this, I'm thinking, okay, the odds of me ever getting to own Luke's locker are slim to none uh, because it's obviously the Lucas's own it. It's a family owned business. The boys are going to take over. And so I, I, I decided that if I was ever going to own my own running store, I knew about the retail side. Now I understood footwear. I understood apparel, nutrition, accessories. I had all that down, but I didn't understand the wholesale side. You know, how does the brand side work? And so I started thinking, you know, if I'm ever going to get to own my own store, maybe I need to learn a little bit better about how the brands work, how they design product, you know, all those kinds of, of, of intricacies. And so I started kind of putting out feelers and I got very fortunate 
uh, Brooks was hiring at the time for a new territory up in Kansas, Missouri, Nebraska, and Iowa. They hadn't had a rep there in three years. So the territory was very stagnant. And the local Brooks rep, who I knew from coming in the Lukes, uh, Cindy came in and we started discussing it. And she, she went to bat for me and got me this position as the territory manager for Brooks, uh, covering Kansas, Missouri, Nebraska, and Iowa. And so in 1986, I packed my, my stuff and what I would have never believed before was possible. I left the state of Texas <laughs> to move to Kansas City to take over that territory. 96, not 86. 96, yes. Okay. And what was that transition like for you, leaving the state of Texas for the first time minus the 14 months you spent? <laughs> it was pretty crazy. Uh, like Again, being born and raised in Abilene, Texas, I, I, I was a lifelong Texan in my mind and heart. Uh, I couldn't imagine ever living anywhere else. And uh, I literally had packed everything I owned and put it into a U-Haul uh, and was driving to Kansas City. And when I crossed the Red River into Oklahoma on my way and saw that Texas, now leaving Texas, entering Oklahoma, I, I literally stopped and pulled over and, and cried because I was like, am I making the right decision? You know, am I doing the right thing? Because I couldn't imagine not, live, uh, not living in Texas. Uh, but, it, but it worked out really, really well. I had a great experience working for Brooks, one of the great companies in, a, in our country especially in the running business. What was it about leaving Texas that made you so emotional? Um, <clears throat> I think just because I, I, it took me back to that place when I had left to go to prison. Uh, I'd become very emotional about that at that time. Uh, you know, it was very hard for me to be away from my family um, and, and not to be able to see them. I, and I realized I wasn't going to be able to see them as often. It wasn't like being in prison. I mean, I could go when I wanted or could, but, you know, I was still going to be away from them, several hours away from them. Uh, my mom also had, uh, we just found out she had leukemia uh, and it was pretty advanced at that time. And so I was worried about her uh, and here I am leaving her. Uh, and so there were just, you know, and, and I'd never done this before. I'd never worked on, on a brand side before. There's going to be a lot of travel involved. Um, so I'd gone from this place of, you know, growing up in a family where I'm going to live in the same town where I grew up in a construction business where I'm home every night to a place where I'm, I'm living in Dallas, working in a running store, you know, doing this nonprofit. But again, I'm home every night. So now I'm going to be this independent rep living in Kansas City, Missouri, traveling all over four states, staying in hotels. Uh, and doing something I've never done in my life, all brand new. So it, it was it was a little scary at first, uh, but I but I had I was excited about it as well because again I thought it was that next stepping stone to that that day that I might possibly own my own running store. What were some of the challenges that you faced, not only being away from home really for the first time, but transitioning to the industry side of things in running? Um. You know, if we look at the, the running shoe companies today, we all know that Brooks is in running specialty stores is the number one selling shoe. Uh, they've done a great job over the last several years of developing product that's just got a great fit. It's, it's great cushioning. Everything about their product is really, really, really done well. Back in 1990s, it wasn't that same product. Uh, 
Brooks was way down the totem pole. Um, the territory that I was going to be covering was very spread apart. Again, there weren't many running specialty stores back in the 90s. So I had uh, had one store in Omaha, one in Lincoln, Nebraska. I had one store, two stores in, in uh, Iowa, uh, Des Moines, and in Davenport. I had a couple stores in Kansas, uh, Wichita, uh, and uh, what's the other city? Manhattan. Uh, and then I had five or six stores in, in, in Missouri, uh, Kansas City, Columbia, St. Louis. So running stores were very far, few and far between, very spread out. The territory I was covering, again, hadn't had a rep in three years. The product uh, wasn't what it is today with the company I was working for. It was a very hard sale. Um, and so it, it, it was just a, it was a very trying moment for me. Uh, the first year that I worked for Brooks, I drove 68,000 miles and slept in my car 31 nights. <laughs> Did it make uh, you second guess anything? Not really. Uh, cause as the days wore on, I was having so much fun with it and the, and the challenge of it. I love a challenge. Just like when Ed Jackson challenged me to run that first 50 miler, you know, there was a little bit of uh, fear to it, but at the same time, I loved it because, you know, the challenge just hit me right upside the head. And I said, you know what, I'm going to prove him wrong. And, and I did. And so this, this opportunity was a challenge that, you know, can you take a territory with a, and I hate to use this word about Brook Sports, but at the time, mediocre product in a territory that has been totally unworked for three years, and can you make it successful? And that challenge hit me right upside the head. And I said, yes, I'm going to take it head on and do it. What did your own relationship with running look like at the time? Well, by now I'd become a, a marathoner and an ultra marathoner. Um, had you run uh, your first hundred yet? I had. Uh, after I did my first fifty, uh, I did my second. <laughs> I did my second fifty six months later, uh, down in Houston. Uh, a race called the San Mark Texas Trail uh, fifty miler, and that just made me even more excited about doing ultras. And then I saw the Western States 100 on Wild World of Sports. And that was beyond my wildest dream. I just thought, you know what? That looks like an experience of a lifetime. And not only doing something that's challenging, but the most beautiful scenery I'd ever seen in my life. You know, through the Sierra Nevada mountains and Lake Tahoe and you know, all the different areas of the Sierra Nevada mountains that, that entail um, the Western States course, the Rocky Chucky River crossing, et cetera. I saw that and I thought, wow, the most beautiful country in the world and, and running a hundred miles, what a challenge. And so I set my sights on the Western States 100 and my first hundred was in 1990. I did the, uh, the initial, uh, oh, what's it called? Gosh, I can't believe I'm, uh, Arkansas Traveler 100, sorry. I did my first 100, the Arkansas Traveler 100, and had the time of my life and qualified uh, to get into the lottery for Western states and, and got picked. And in 1992, I did my first Western. Uh, and that became my, my focal point. The way you described your 
experience or what you imagine the experience of the Western States 100 being isn't too different from the stroll on the golf course that you loved so much when that was the sport of choice for you. Right, exactly. And, and so much of my running, I think I, I, I contribute to my 12 years of being a competitive golfer, uh, that every day was a new day. Uh, every day was a challenge. Uh, again, a very competitive person. So, you know, I don't care if I was playing by myself. Uh, it was, you know, I made a four on that hole yesterday, so I got to make a three today. Or I hit the drive on this hole to that tree. X amount of yards down the fairway. Today, I've got to drive past that. Everything was a, a competition uh, for me. And so uh, running became that same thing for me. And, and it became, again, not about beating everybody else, but it became a challenge within myself. Uh, I challenge myself in my running more than I do other people. Uh, I've I won a few ultras uh, down through the years. Uh, uh, but it was more about setting personal best and, and surpassing personal goals uh, than it was anything else. That first Western States experience for you, did it live up to the expectations? Everything and then some. I mean, the course was just magnificent, uh, difficult, very difficult. You know, when you start at 5 a.m. and it's 30 degrees, and the first four miles you're running up to Ski Mountain at Squaw Valley where they had the Olympic downhill in the 1960 Olympics, and you're running up that thing. You know, it's at uh, 7,500 feet of altitude, and you're running straight uphill for four miles. And fast forward, you get to Devil's Thumb at mile 48, and it's 105 degrees, <laughs> and, and you've already run 48 miles, and now you've got to go straight back uphill again up Devil's Thumb. Um, and I could go on and on talking about Western States course, but I mean, the beauty of it the serenity of it, because in that 100 miles of running, I dare say that five miles of it, you're running with somebody. The other 95 miles, you're running solo. And so you're within yourself and your own mind and heart and soul. And you learn a lot about yourself and, and what, you're, what you're going through. Have you always felt comfortable in that situation when it's just you out there with your own thoughts and in your own head trying to find a way forward? You know, Mario, I really have. And I, 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 I don't remember thinking this prior to going to prison and in my incarceration. But, you know, when for 14 months you're laying in a cell 22, 23 hours a day with nothing to do but think about, you know, think within yourself about what, what's next, what you're going to do. I mean, yeah, I preoccupied myself with writing letters to friends or family, reading a book here and there. But for the most part, you're, you're, you're just laying there thinking. Uh, I became very comfortable with b being within myself. And so that's why I think the long distance running for me has been so, I hate to use this word, but successful is that I'm totally comfortable being alone and being in my own thoughts uh, thoughts. Uh, 130,000 miles I've run, I've never used uh, earphones to listen to a song one time. Not one time have I listened to a song in 33 years of running, 130,000 miles. My thoughts are totally within myself. And so when I go out and do my training runs of 30, 40 miles, or I do a 24-hour run, or a 100-mile run, 50-mile run, uh, it's all just kind of locked down inside my head. 
you know, and I think about what my body's feeling, what my legs are feeling, my feet, my heart, my lungs. I think about what I should have done this week, what I need to do next week. And then I zone out. I'm all over the board, but I'm very comfortable there. And uh, it's, it's one reason why the pandemic and the quarantine back in March when that all hit uh, and people were complaining about being locked in their house. And I was like, hey, this is not a bad deal. I've got a TV. I've got an Internet. I've got a cell phone. Uh, you know, I've got e everything you can have to keep myself occupied, you know, and I'm in, and I'm in my home, not in a 10 by 10 cell with another guy, you know, with nothing to do. So um, I'm totally comfortable with it, though. I, I'm, I'm, I'm all right being with just Mike Rouse. The question I have for you has to do with the sport of ultra running as a whole. There are a lot of ultra runners with similar backgrounds to yourself. Maybe they didn't go to jail, but they have a history of substance abuse. Why do you think that is? <clears throat> you know, I've, I've, I've not really ever asked anybody else because I didn't want to get anybody else's business. Um, but from what I've known of ultra runners that I've run with, and, and they and they bring it up, and we may talk about it. But I don't just say, "Hey, so why did you get into running ultra running?" And you know, are you done with your drugs now? You know, I, I've never asked those kind of intimate questions. But the thing that I think we all kind of hold is that we're looking we're looking to better ourselves, and running definitely does that for us. Uh, it gives us personal satisfaction that's for the most part relatively inexpensive. You know, uh, I mean, you know, if, if I want to, if I want to entertain myself, I can get on a plane and fly to Italy for two weeks and it's very entertaining and it's beautiful and a lot of fun, you know, all that good stuff. Very, very expensive. Uh, I can go run for two weeks and it costs me very little. It costs me $150 for a pair of shoes. It's probably gonna last another month afterwards. Um, and, and this may sound kind of crazy, but I, I think most folks that have been through addiction are looking for something. And that's the reason why they get addicted to a drug or alcohol is that they're looking for something to make things better or to uh, take their mind off of what their problems are. And I think running kind of does that same thing. Uh, you know, it kind of takes their mind off. It makes them feel better about themselves and it gives them pleasure. Uh, and we're always kind of seeking that happiness that, that, uh, that running brings. Does running give you or has it given you a similar feeling to when you were using drugs and alcohol? I would say it's even farther, far above what drugs and alcohol did. And that's the reason why cocaine has never been a source of, of want for me ever since, you know, all this happened. Um, running's a bigger high. Running's a bigger high and, you know, it's just, and, it, and again, I can look at it as a positive high not as a negative. It's going to cost me my freedom, cost me a lot of money, cost me friendships, cost me relationships. It doesn't do any of that stuff. It builds relationships. It builds my health. Um, it does things in a positive manner that the negative part of drugs and alcohol can do to you. And so, uh, but you know, to me, when I, I get so excited on a Friday night when I know I'm getting up on Saturday morning to go do a 30-mile run or a 40-mile run. I get fired up over it. There's no, there's no motion, or no period of dread about it. It's like, wow, tomorrow I get to go out and run. I get to do what I love for six hours or eight hours. I mean, next Friday, a week from today, 
6 o'clock next Friday, basically exactly a week from right now, Mario, I'm going to run 24 hours uh, as a fundraiser for the Navy SEAL Foundation. I am so excited about it. You wouldn't even believe it. There is absolutely no dread to it. There's no fear in it. I know my body will handle it. I know mentally I can handle it. I'm so excited about it because I get to do what I love for 24 straight hours. I want to come back to your connection with the Navy SEALs and how, you, how you've how you used your running to support heroes that have been lost. But while we're on the topic of ultra running and addiction, you mentioned earlier in this conversation how you have this full-on personality. If you're going to do something, you are going to put the gas all the way to the floor yes, and sir. just take it all the way. How much of your relationship with ultra running is because of that? Like looking back, is it almost predictable that this is the path that you've gone down? Well, the, the way is I've tried to analyze it down through the years, you know, and I, I kind of go back to what I said earlier about when I did the 5k that first time and I saw that older man and that older woman and that younger boy run by me. Uh, it was very frustrating and it was challenging and, um, uh, you know, all kinds of adjectives I could use to describe it. But then as I, I progressed in distance up to 10K, up to half marathon, up to marathon, as I started to analyze, okay, so where, where have I come from 5K to marathon? And I realized that I could almost run a marathon, not not the same, but almost the same pace that I could run a 10K. And I'm talking about mile, uh, minutes per mile. And so I thought, wow, I have, I have durability. I just don't have that aerobic strength that some people do. And so as I looked at it, I thought, okay, yeah, okay, I'll use Steve Scott. Steve Scott and I are about the same age, right? One of the greatest milers of all time, 139, I think it is, sub four-minute uh, miles. But a guy who ran all of his life. So his body was conditioned to run a sub four minute mile. Well, I've never broke five minutes in a mile because I didn't start running until I was 33. And so if I was to compete against Steve Scott, I wouldn't have a chance, right? I mean, he's going to kill me every time. But let me tell you something. Let's put him in a hundred mile race and see who wins. Uh, and so that competitive spirit that I've always had, that competitive drive to be the best that I can be kind of drove me from going from you know, smaller distances on up and up and up. And then once I'd begun to do them and became successful at them, it just kind of spurred me on even more. And then I became competitive within myself uh, to do it as, as good as I could. I don't want to fast forward through too much. We've already been going for a while here, but you eventually got into doing some triathlon. You did the Ultraman World Championships on a couple different occasions. How did you go from running marathons and ultras into other ultra endurance type events that running was just one piece of? Well, when I turned 50, I was actually in Kona for Ironman World Championships. Uh, I've been going over there for quite some time. Uh, just because, I, I, you know, I, again, I love the competition. I love endurance. Being a 24-hour, 100-miler, 50-mile guy, Ironman is an endurance event, obviously. I kind of got into it. I was, Hawaii was a territory of mine for the brands I've, I've worked on. After Brooks, I went to Mizuno, and that's when I was given Hawaii as a territory back in the, the late 90s, uh, starting in 1998. And so for years, I'd, I'd been going over there and, and watching Ironman. 
uh, I'd always make a trip over around Ironman time to be able to be there and watch it. And so when I was turning 50, and my birthday's October the 3rd, right around Ironman time, I'd gone over there and I'd run 50 miles on my birthday um, and, you know, to celebrate my age. And as I was doing that run that day, I thought, you know what, I'm, I'm 50 now. The odds of me ever winning another ultra are pretty slim. You know, how do you compete against 25, 30, 35-year-old guys, you know, who probably were good marathoners at some point? Uh, at 50 years old, you're not going to beat them. Now, the ultra world had really grown from when I started back in the late 80s, right? Uh, and so I thought, you know, maybe I should do something different. I'm not going to probably PR at any distance anymore. I'm not going to win races. So maybe I should get into something different. And so I decided I'd, you know, I was excited about Ironman, Kona. And so I decided I'd get, in, I'd get into uh, Ironmans and uh, went over to the local B&L bike shop in Kona, Hawaii and got a set of goggles and went down to the pool uh, and was going to just swim across the pool and couldn't do it. Couldn't swim across the 25-meter pool. 25, uh, yeah, 25-meter pool. And I thought, oh, my gosh, those guys, they're swimming two – Point four miles, and I can't swim twenty five meters. Are you kidding me? This is going to be this going to be difficult. Never owned a bike in my life. Hadn't ridden a bike since I was a twelve year old kid. And so I came back to San Diego, and I met my running group there in Ski Beach on Saturday morning with Kevin McCary. Some of the best elite runners in in San Diego were all there, and uh, I'd become friends with a lot of the triathletes that worked out with him: Greg and Sean Welch, uh, McKeeley Jones. Uh, Chris McCormick was coming there occasionally when he was in town visiting. Uh, I could go on and on, uh, different athletes. And so somehow it had come up in the group that I was thinking about getting into Ironmans. And so we had done our workout for the day and we're on our two-mile cool down back to our cars. And Mahili Jones comes jogging up beside me with this little smile on her face. And she says, so Mikey, I hear that you want to be an Ironman triathlete. I said, yeah, I think I can get into it. I mean, I'm an endurance guy. I've run for 24 hours. I've run 100 miles. I think I can do, you know, I think I can do a, an Ironman. And she said, but you can't swim and you can't ride a bike. And I said, well, I know, but I can learn. And she starts laughing and she says, well, I'll tell you what I'm going to do. When you can swim 2,000 meters in a pool without stopping, I'm going to get my sponsor to give you a bike so you can do an Ironman. And it was kind of like that challenge from several years ago when Ed Jackson had challenged me to run 50 miles to become a man. Now here's McKeeley Jones saying, when you can swim 2,000 meters without stopping, I'm going to get you a bike to see if you can do an Ironman. Well, it was game on. And so I went down on the following Monday to uh, the Y and found a coach and told him what I was try trying to do and jumped in the pool and he told me to swim across and back and he wanted to see my stroke. And I told him I couldn't. He says, just, just do it. And I couldn't. And uh, fast forward, six months later, I did Ironman Lake Placid. Were you hooked? I was hooked, line and sinker. <laughs> <laughs> Fell in love with it. I was, I was horrible swimming. I was not that good on the bike, but I could outrun everybody in my age group. Is that what hooked you? That's what hooked me. The fact that you could outrun everybody at the end. Because I was going by guys, actually, I was 50 years old, and I'm passing guys with 50, 52, 53 on the, you know, uh, marked on the back of their calf. 
And I'm going by them on the run, and I'm thinking, yep, I got you. Because this, this wasn't about runners anymore. This was about triathletes, and I was a runner. I wasn't a cyclist, and I certainly wasn't a swimmer, but I was a runner. And so I, was, I still wasn't very high in the age, the placings, but I was passing people. <laughs> and how did that eventually lead to Ultraman? <laughs> uh, so I fast forward two years, uh, 2004, because I started swimming in 2002, like I said, when I turned 50. Fast forward two years, I've done a few Ironmans, and I'm in Kona again for Ironman. And I walk into Big Island Running Company, and the store owner knew my deal. She knew I was an ultra runner who I did Ironmans. And she said, oh, Mike, I got somebody here that's in the store right now I want you to meet. And I said, who is that? She calls this lady over, and she said, uh, Diana says, Mike, this is Jane Bacchus. Jane, this is Mike Rouse. He's my uh, Mizuno rep, and he's an ultra marathoner, does Ironmans, et cetera, et cetera. And I said, Jane, why did uh, Diana want us to meet? And she says, well, I own a race here called Ultraman. And I said, what do you mean, Ultraman? And it was kind of like Ed Jackson talking about <laughs> that 50-miler and me seeing Western States 100 on TV. She said, well, we, we circle the island. We have a, it's a 10K swim, a 261-mile bike, and a double marathon over three days. And I, and I mean, my, I'm sure my eyes kind of glazed over. And I said, that's perfect. I love it. Because now I can do, you know, the three things I love for three straight days. I can go all day long for three straight days. I'm in. And because of my, my career in the running industry uh, and because of my successes with, you know, ultras, she uh, allowed me to get into the race. And so in 2005, I did my first Ultraman and won the 15 over age group. Were you even more hooked on that than you were Ironman? Oh, definitely. I never did another Ironman. After I did Ultraman in 2005, I never... go back? Yeah. It's like saying, yeah, you know, I'm a marathoner, but I want to go race a, a 10K, you know? I mean, there's nothing wrong with it, but it's, it's, not, it's not your bag, you know? It's not your, it's not your forte. And, and again, I guess that competitive thing, well, I'll, I'll say it one more time, that competitive thing about me... Ultraman was something I could win at. I won my age group as age group world champion. I, I couldn't come close in an Ironman because you got guys that can swim, you know, the Ironman course my, in my age group in 50 something minutes and then ride, you know, five hours on the, on the bike. And here I am an hour and a half of swimming and six and a half hours on the bike. Well, I can't run that fast to catch them. But Ultraman, I could. And so it, it, the competitive juices in me got me into Ultraman, and I stayed there. I did it six times. How do you straddle that line between knowing you can be competitive in your age group against other people in an event like that and what you described earlier with ultras and other endurance pursuits of just being competitive with yourself and being in your own head for so long? Well, I think the thing, I mean, and, I, and I didn't do Ultraman necessarily to win my age group. Uh, I did just because I loved the challenge of and the opportunity to go for eight, nine, ten hours a day of doing the thing that I love, uh, and, and this is probably a bad comparison, Mario, but it's almost like saying to a lady who loves to shop, who's a fashionista, that here's a here's an open credit card, and here is you know ten great stores you can shop as long as you want to and buy anything you want. <laughs> they, they would go nuts, right? 
because they would get to buy all the clothes that they want, the shoes they want, the accessories they want, and, and just have the time of their life doing what they truly love. Well, that's me doing Ultraman, doing eight to 10 hours a day, every day, uh, in something that I love. And it, it just gave me a thrill beyond recognition. Had I not had so many bad back crashes and broken so many bones, uh, I probably would have still been doing Iron uh, Ultraman. But my bike crashes got me back into just ultra running. So that was my next question for you because I know you haven't done a triathlon in quite some time. And I really, 2011. <laughs> I really wasn't sure what the impetus behind that was, but it makes a lot of sense now that you describe that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, nine broken bones and uh, surgery on my hand uh, to repair, you know, fingers that were shattered. A uh, few broken vertebra, concussions, shattered shoulder, you name it. Uh, those kinds of things got me out of riding a bike. Much safer just to run down the trail. Did your relationship with running change at all when you weren't able to do Ultraman or triathlon or ride a bike anymore and it was just running again no in fact it it was kind of nice to be honest with you because i could you know doing all the training for ultraman was as much as i did love it it was still very time consuming because you can't go and just ride your bike for an hour and really get anything out of it because time you air up your tires and you stop at stop signs and red lights and you watch for traffic and all the things that come along with riding a bike an hour of bike, and then you've got coasting, you know, times when you're coasting downhill, that you're not really exercising, you're just sitting there. Not to be negative against cyclists, that's not, I don't mean it that way, but an hour of exercise on a bike was nothing compared to an hour run to me. And so because of time commitments, uh, running became extremely contagious again. Next and then the other thing to add to that is that as much travel as I've done down through the years, working for different brands all around the country, 100, 150 nights a year in a hotel, you can't really take your bike with you uh, when you're calling on accounts. It's hard to find a pool sometimes, uh, but you can always run out the door of your hotel, you know, and you get 30 minutes or an hour in and you've done something. And so running became that passion again that it was when I first started number of different directions that I want to go here, but we don't have a ton of time left. So I know I'm fast forwarding through a bunch. may have to have you on again, but most recently, back in May, you ran 31 miles a day for 31 days and yeah. you raised funds and awareness for the 31 American soldiers of Extortion 17 who died when their helicopter was shot down by Taliban forces in Afghanistan. I think that was August 2011. And yes. that was the deadliest single incident in the history of U.S. Special Ops Command. When did you come up with that idea? And as we had loosely touched on earlier, your relationship to the Navy SEALs and the military is something that's very, very important to you, even though you never served yourself. So I'd love to dig into that relationship and the importance that it holds for you and how you connect running with it. Uh, that's awesome. I, I appreciate that question because that's, that's one thing that's become very, very dear to me the last uh, several years of my life. Um, and it all begins back in 2002. It's the same year that I turned 50, but it was in my running group uh, that I talked about earlier where all these young, uh, young fast guys were running that I trained with, uh, where I talked with McKeeley Jones about triathlon. But one Saturday morning, 
go to the workout. And again, here's the top 15, 20, 30 runners in San Diego all gathered together, all very fit, small people, you know, as elite runners could be. Um, and here are these two guys as, I, as I'm doing my warm up that are about six foot three, six foot four, 220, 230 pounds, tattooed up pretty heavily, who are jogging around with, with some of the other people. And so I went over to our coach. I said, hey, Kevin, uh, who are those two big guys jogging around with some of the other folks? He said, well, I don't know them. We have a couple of Navy SEALs that want to get, get into marathoning and get fitter than they already are. And uh, they found out about our group. They just wanted to come run with us. I said, all right. And I'm thinking, you know, these guys aren't going to last. You know, this is really extremely fast guys. That, you know, speed, which with most of these runners are going to be running, is not, is not going to be uh, suitable to them. And, you know, they'll probably be here for a week or two and they'll, they'll back off. That was my initial thought. And so uh, as I watched them, though, these guys were hanging. I mean, they were running their guts out. And no matter how hard they ran on one, one segment, uh, of, of the workout, the next time Kevin would blow the whistle to start again, here, here they'd go. And they were pushing it to the limit. And I was pretty impressed by it, the fact that here's six foot three, 230 pound guys running with guys that were 140, 150 pounds and uh, had been running all their lives. And it was pretty impressive. They were young. They were in their mid-20s. But uh, so fast forward several weeks and uh, one of them invited me to breakfast. His name was John Tumelson, JT, we called him. And uh, so we go to breakfast that Saturday morning after the workout, and, and we're talking about this, that, and the other. We're not talking about Navy SEALs or any of the business that he did as a, as a living, as a career. But we're talking about just running and this, that, and the other. And he, he says, uh, finally gets kind of serious. He says, so, you know, I'm from Rockford, Iowa, a little town in, in western Iowa. It's about 100, and, uh, about 100 miles out of Des Moines and a uh, town of 800 people. My mom and dad are still there farmer. Uh, my dad's a farmer and a construction guy. So I don't get to see my mom and dad very often. It's hard to get there because I have to fly into Des Moines, rent a car, drive down three, two or three hours. I see them for a day and a half. I have to drive back, fly back to San Diego. And he says, I, I just don't get to see my parents very much. And I need, I need some uh, parental supervision, so to speak. And he says, would you be that guy for me here on the West Coast? Be kind of like a West Coast daddy. And I said, young man, I'd love to do that. And he says, well, if you're, if you're willing to do it, he says, I want to call you Pops. He says, I want you to be my West Coast Pops. And so we agreed to do it. Make a long story short, we became very dear friends. We ran together quite regularly. We trained for marathons together and actually ran the San Diego Marathon, Rock and Roll Marathon together. And uh, became very, very close. And he introduced me to a lot of other Navy SEAL buddies. And I kind of grew relationships with these guys. And I, part of it's because I was older and like a father figure to some of these guys. But, you know, we never talked Navy SEAL business. That was none of my, I, I didn't want to know anything about it. They didn't want to share it. And I wanted them to kind of have an escape valve from that. So we became very close and uh, saw each other on a regular, regular basis. Well, fast forward to August 6, 2011. Uh, I got a phone call that JT had been shot down in Afghanistan on this helicopter extortion 17. And that, he and 30 other American soldiers had lost their lives. So all 31 uh, were taken from us that day. And it was a tremendous uh, blow to me, uh, devastating. And uh, I thought, you know, I've got to do something to honor his life because this was such a special young man. He had such an impact on me as an as a, as a older man. Um, and I, I want to do something to honor his life and the life of those other guys. And so I'm, I'm going to run on the anniversary of that helicopter 
disaster. I'm going to run 24 hours and, and try to raise some money and awareness of what, what they went through. And a couple of Navy SEAL wives in the meantime, during that next few months, came to me and said, hey, we, we want to put together a 5K race in honor of the 31 lives lost in Extortion 17. And so we put together this, this group called Jogging for Frogman, where I was going to run for 24 hours. And at the end of that 24 hours, we were going to do a 5K race there in San Diego and uh, to raise money for the Navy SEAL Foundation. And... Uh, so we did it. It was very successful. I ran the 24 hours and each lap I ran the 3.1 mile course. Just so happens 3.1 miles, right? 31 guys. And I, I did it 31 times. Uh, and I had a shirt in honor of just one guy on each shirt and would run an, a, a loop in honor of that one guy and then change shirts and run in honor of the next guy. And so I did that and we raised about $150,000 that first year for the Navy SEAL Foundation. Uh, to honor the lives of Extortion 17. And it was so successful, we decided to do it again. And fast forward, um, this year is the ninth year. We've now got nine races nationwide, and we've raised $2.6 million uh, for the Navy SEAL Foundation. We still are all volunteers that work for that organization. We don't take any money. We've got the all the races are underwritten by the Veterans United Foundation. So every dime that is raised through entry fees or sponsorship goes to the Navy SEAL Foundation. So um, that's kind of what got it going. Um, when COVID-19 hit everybody back in March and I was furloughed from my part-time job, I decided to stay at home. I thought, well, this is a good time. You know, I've got experience with pandemics. Uh, not not really a pandemic, but a personal pandemic when I was in prison, being alone in a, in a cell. Now I'm alone in my house, um, but I can handle it and I'll just use this time to get fit. So I started running pretty, pretty regularly, once or twice a day, if not three times a day, and got extremely fit. And about the middle of April, when the, the quarantine in Texas got uh, pushed back to the end of May, and I was going to be in my house another 45 days, I said, you know what? I got to do something different. I can't just do this forever. And so I contacted some very dear friends and said, hey, you know, give me a fundraiser. I want to raise some money while I do this. And I want to do something special for Extortion 17. And I decided to run 31 miles a day for 31 heroes for 31 days, uh, the whole month of May, and under those 31 men. So starting on May 1, I ran 31 miles a day for the whole month of May. Just Right at a thousand miles, uh, and raised several thousand dollars, and the money was given to the boot campaign, which goes to support men who have returned from the military, mostly from being on deployment overseas, and have issues with PTSD or depression or traumatic brain injury, that kind of thing. Um, and so it was a it was a chance for me to kind of bring awareness uh, of their situation. Uh, and to give back to those 31 men who sacrificed everything. What was the response like? It was amazing. It was absolutely amazing. Uh, I got in touch with basically every family of those 31 men. Some I'd already met down through the years through Jogging for Frogmen and from some of the other fundraisers I've done in honor of, of Extortion 17. But that month, I literally... Uh, would investigate each night, the night before I ran for one of the particular uh, crew members uh, of Extortion 17. I would Google them, find out about them, their backgrounds, where they were from, who their family was, 
whether they were married, had children, engaged, all the different things you can think of. And I would learn about those people because I realized I was running for somebody who literally gave everything they had. And people would ask me, um, you know, on Facebook or Twitter or Instagram, you know, they would see that I was on day 12 or day 15 and say, how are you doing this? You know, aren't you, in, aren't you suffering? And my response was always very simple to me. 31 men died. They gave the ultimate sacrifice of their life for this country. In the same light of that, 31 families will never be the same. Their lives are forever shaken and, and their spouse, husband, brother, son were taken away from them. Me suffering a little bit physically, being in a little bit of pain means nothing compared to the, the pain that they're suffering every single day. And so they were my inspiration. And every time I started to feel something that was a little tight or, you know, that something hurt or I was a little tired, I would just think of one of those 31 families or particularly that guy I was running for that day and think that man gave everything he had so that I can have the freedom to do what I'm doing today. And so I, I, I was able to work through it and, and accomplish the task. How did those 31 days change you? And this is going to be a two-part question. On one hand, physically, running 31 miles every day for a month straight. I mean, you've done some crazy things, but this is right <laughs> up there in terms of overall volume. But then as you just described, you're learning about each of these men the night before you're about to go out and run for them and thinking about them for you know the five, six hours that you were out right. there running most of those days. And I have to imagine that it changes you in, in some way. You know, physically, obviously, Mario, it made me much stronger. I mean, doing a 100-miler is, is, is very difficult. There's no question about it. Running for 24 hours is very difficult. It takes a lot out of you. Uh, but running 31 miles every single day and knowing you got to get up tomorrow and do it again and again and again and again. Physically... I wouldn't say take a toll on me. It, 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 it made me so strong. In fact, the 31st day, I ran the fastest of the 31 days. I kept getting fitter as we went. I lost 18 pounds. And I, it, you know me, Mario. I'm, I'm not physically equipped to lose 18 pounds. Uh, pretty, pretty darn fit for my age. But I lost 18 pounds. But I got down to my, so to speak, fighting weight. Uh, and, and last day, I was running for my buddy, JT. Uh, because he, I saved him for last, and and I, I had a, a time goal set uh, that I wanted to run, but I just wanted to do the best I could be that day, and so physically it set me up to do that, and I was able to accomplish that. But what I learned about those thirty-one men, and and I guess you say googling their lives, uh, talking to their families on Facebook and direct message on text, some on phone calls. I got to learn about men and families that, uh, like I said, had given everything that they had. You know, and when you hear about a, a man who was married and had three kids, who's on his seventh deployment to Afghanistan, and he's willing to sacrifice his life so that I can live in this great country, drive my new car, go around running and having fun, celebrating life. And that man was willing to give everything he had for me and for this country. It, it just was, it was mind blowing. And, and it, it, uh, 
you know, it just really made me commit myself to giving back to others even more than I already had. Because how can you give back more than giving your life? You know, I mean, I hear about people giving $10 million or something and people, oh my God, he gave $10 million. What a great hero. I'm like, yeah, it's money. You know, these men gave life. I, you can't, I can't comprehend it. Uh, not to get into a religious thing or a scriptural thing, but, you know, there, there's, a, there's a scripture in the Bible that says, you know, when you lay down your life for your friends, it's the greatest sacrifice of all. And to me, that is, it is the ultimate sacrifice. And so I was able every single day to just see that guy. You know, I'd seen the image of him the night before in a picture. I'd read about their life. Now they're on my shoulder riding uh, as I'm running and whispering in my ear, come on, man, you got this. One more mile, five more miles, whatever, you know. And it, and it really spurred me on to it. So you've done something each of the last nine years to commemorate this, to raise awareness, to raise funds. I mean, the the future, as we know it, is, is very uncertain. Whether or not you'll be able to hold another event like Jogging Like Frogman remains to be seen. But sure. what is your next move in terms of honoring these men. I know you'll continue to do it through your running, but I know you've been working on some other projects as well. Well, uh, <laughs> again, when you've got five to six hours a day for 31 straight days, not counting the time I'm at my house, you know, resting, recovering, you know, hanging out. But when you've got five to six hours uh, out running and it's just you, no headphones, no music playing, none of that kind of stuff. It's just you and, and, your surroundings. You have a lot of time to think. And, and so each day I would, I would think about each one of those men and their families. And so I really want to put down in writing uh, a book about that. Uh, I don't necessarily have a title for it yet. 31 for 31 for 31 or, uh, you know, something along those lines. Uh, but I, I do want to write a book about it um, and, and just share it not for not for financial reward or anything like that, but just because I want our country, so many times in the country, we know what we see on TV, you know, and 90% of it's not good. <laughs> uh, you know, whether it be, you know, a news channel or a sports channel anymore. I mean, there's just so much negativity in our world right now. And my goal is to be positive about everything if I can. And I just want the world to know about the sacrifice of not just these 31 men, but of men and women every single day, families every single day who give everything that they've got to give us the freedom to be America. Uh, there's a reason why everybody wants to come to America. I mean, People migrate to other countries, but this country has the greatest immigration of people into it of any country in the world. And so there's a reason that, that these soldiers do what they do is for that freedom of our, our country to be the only democracy that's really so self-sustaining. And so I want, I want to write a book that commemorates those 31 lives, maybe call out a few of them and talk about them as I knew them or as their families have shared with me to give specific incidents of it. Um, but use the analogy of my running career. Um, 
you know, I know that when those of you that are listening to this, that who are runners, whether you're a marathoner, 5K or ultra runner, whatever you may be, triathlete who does Ironmans or sprint uh, tries, whatever your, whatever your sports are, um, there's that little bit of anticipation when you go to the starting line that there's a, a lot of excitement that you're going to get to do this big event. Uh, but yet there's also that fear factor of, did I train hard enough? Am I, am I prepared? You know, am I going to run this race the way it should be run and within myself? And so we have all these questions and doubts, but we also have a lot of excitement about what's ahead. And I can only imagine those 31 men on that helicopter that day, August 6, 2011, who had, for most of them, trained a big portion of their life to be that guy who's called on to do that mission of bringing some, some uh, other warriors out of a, a bad situation. They were a rescue team going in to, to save, save uh, other American lives. And so I'm sure that there was a lot of them that were thinking, this is what I've trained all my life for, to be able to do this and make a difference. And yet at the same time, you're getting on a helicopter uh, with AK-47s and hand grenades, and you're going into enemy territory knowing that the men you're trying to save have people surrounding them that want to kill you. So there's a lot of fear and doubt as to, you know, am I really ready for this? You know, can I make this mission happen or am I going to fail? And so I, I kind of think, think of it uh, in those terms, and it kind of brings me a lot of alignment to what those men went through on Chinook 17, Extortion 17. Uh, that, that Chinook helicopter was full of 31 men who had anticipated saving lives, but yet there's got to be a lot of fear and dread. And uh, so anyway, that's just kind of a, a brief summary of that. Well, I love it. I am excited to help you work on it. I was obviously aware of it before I, I served up that question. But <laughs> knowing you as I do and knowing how important this is to you and how it's fueled you over the last several years, um, I've learned a lot just from our conversations. And I think a lot of people listening to this conversation are going to learn a lot. But even more will be able to if you're able to get this book out and share those stories. Well, I appreciate it. Last couple questions before okay. we wrap up here. I mean, don't take this the wrong way. You're no spring chicken. You're in your late <laughs> 60s now. You're still doing incredible things like running 31 miles a day for 31 days straight where, I mean, I'm you know, a little more than half your age and I'm like shaking my head at that. How do you, how do you keep the stoke high at that age when you've been at it for arguably a long time, 30 plus years? And also, how do you stay healthy? Um, I'll be honest with you, Mario. I really don't know why my drive is as high as it is. I really don't. Uh, I have no explanation for it other than I, I just know I was born a competitive person and I was taught at an early age. My dad was a competitor. I don't care if you, if you said, uh, I can drive a golf ball 480 yards. My dad could have driven it 490. I, I remember as, as a young man when the Dallas Cowboys were playing and they would, you know, the announcer on TV would talk about how so-and-so, you know, had, had just run for 120 yards in a game. And my dad would be like, well, if I was in there, I could run for more than that, you know. 
and you know, or some guy would make a great tackle, and and he would make the comment, "That guy could have never tackled me like that." You know, he was a he was a competitive pistol, and so when you're taught that growing up as a child, I think it just kind of it gets ingrained in your spirit, and so I just love competition. And again, my competition isn't about anybody else. And that's, that's where I think over the last few years I've been able to change, ch- challenge myself and, and kind of keep it going is that I'm not worried about what any other 67-year-old guy can do. I really don't care. Do I want to beat them? Yes, I do. But if they can do 50 miles a day for 31 days or 50 de- miles a day for 50 days, that's great. That's their deal. And I applaud them for it. I'm going to do what I can do, and I just want to challenge myself. So my competitiveness now, uh, and that's a long answer to a, a short question, but my competitiveness now isn't against other people. It's against myself. And in that light, I can never I can never really win because I'm always going to be here tomorrow. <laughs> Last question, and I've been saving this one for the very end. I've known you for a little over... 10 years now. I can't remember exactly when you said this to me, but they're two of the most impactful words anyone's ever spoken to me. And I know you've said them to other people as well, but at some point in our relationship, you told me to be somebody. (laughs) And that is, it's stuck with me. I wrote it down in a journal somewhere. I think about it every day. When you tell that to someone, what do you mean and why are you saying it to them? Well, there's that one and there's one other one and I'll share that one in just a second. But the reason why I love that is that I think so many of us think that we are nobody. And now when I, when I challenge somebody to be somebody, what I'm saying to you is be who you can be and make it count. Make, it, make a difference. And I think the world right now, most people, the great, great majority of people, think that they are a nobody, that nobody cares what they think. Nobody cares what their accomplishments are. Nobody cares what their talent set is. All the, all the nobody, nobody, nobody things that they can say about themselves. But be somebody for yourself. And that's, again, kind of goes back to what I just said about the competitive drive. I want to be somebody for me. Not that it's about me. It's about other people. But being me, I can be somebody to somebody else. And, and then the thing I would add to that is my other quick saying uh, is one my dad told me when I was 12 years old, 13 years old, and I didn't know what he meant at first, but now it, it makes great sense. He used to always say, son, give people roses while they're living. And I thought, well, that's kind of a weird thing. You know, you go to the hospital, you know, you give somebody some roses for being in the hospital. You know, somebody gets married or there's a funeral, you give people roses, right? You know, you go to somebody's, you know, funeral service, there's roses everywhere, flowers, arrangements. And what he ended up, now what I know what he meant was that person laying in that coffin doesn't realize that you honored their life that day. They're gone. They're, They're gone forever, right? But if you give them roses while they're living, they, they hear it, they understand it, and they appreciate it. So my goal in life has always been to build people up. And that's the reason why be somebody and give people roses while they're living are kind of one and the same. 
Because if I'm challenging you to be somebody, I'm, I'm telling you, you are somebody. Prove it to yourself. Prove it to others. And so by giving people roses while they're living, building them up, making them feel good about themselves, you, you're doing them such a big favor because the world wants to tear them down. The, nobody likes somebody better than they are. Uh, they always, everybody wants to be at the top. And so I just hope everybody can understand that it's, it's in your makeup, it's in your DNA to be somebody. You're a human being, not a human doer. <laughs> uh, you know, we were all born human beings. So just be somebody. Well, I love that. I love you. I thank you for the last two plus hours of your time. No surprise <laughs> to me. This is the longest podcast that I've ever recorded in 120 <laughs> plus episodes. So seriously, yeah, no, no joke at all. And of course, it would oh be Mike Rouse, who's been the first person to go past the two hour barrier here on the Morning Shakeout <laughs> podcast. But I thank you for your time. I thank you for all that you've done for me personally, for the running community and the world as a whole. Well, if I might close with this, Mario, uh, I want to thank you again for in this invitation uh, because when I wrote my first book, uh, when I turned 60, seven years ago, uh, I sat down one day and said, you know what, I got I to gotta recall everything that's happened in my life. It's been such a crazy story. And I did that. And when I finished it, I wasn't sure. I'd never done anything like that in my life. There was one person that I trusted complicitly to take that and to edit it for me. And that was, that was you. Because I, I believed in you. I, I honored you as a friend and as someone who uh, was a compassionate guy who, who knew me and, and, and knew what I wanted to say in that book. And so you were the only person I even thought of to say, would you edit my book for me? Take out the bad, add some good, do the punctuation, whatever it takes, because I want this to be done right. And so that's how much I love and trust you. And so for you to, to ask me to be on your show was a complete honor uh, for me, and I appreciate it. Well, I appreciate that. I it was the honor of a lifetime to to help you with that book and and even just over the last two hours to relive some of it with you and talk it out rather than read it on the page is is really something special and something that I'm glad I have on tape and we can go back and listen to from here on out. So thanks again. You betcha. My pleasure. Thank you so much for listening in to this episode of the Morning Shakeout Podcast. If you enjoyed it and want to support the show, please tell a friend about it or throw up a post on Instagram, Twitter, or Facebook and encourage your friends and followers to listen and subscribe. You can also leave a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts or whatever platform you're listening to this on, which only takes a minute and it really means a lot to me. I'd like to give a shout out, as always, to my man, John Summerford. He's my audio ninja for this show and makes every episode sound clear and amazing. Also, thank you to Jeffrey Stern for the editorial assistance and Chris Douglas for handling sponsorship sales. I don't have a big team here at The Morning Shakeout, but these three guys play key roles in helping keep this ship afloat. Last two things before we wrap up. If you want to support The Morning Shakeout directly, you can become a member on Patreon at themorningshakeout.com support. I put out a separate weekly podcast on there called The Weekly Rundown with my friend Billy Yang and offer other exclusive perks and sneak peeks from time to time. 
Finally, if you're digging this podcast, I think you'll love my newsletter. It's also called The Morning Shakeout. And every Tuesday morning, I give my take on what's happening in the world of running, along with a collection of things that I've been thinking about, reading, and listening to that you might enjoy getting in your inbox every week. You can sign up to receive it at themorningshakeout.com slash subscribe. Okay, that's it. I'm Mario Fraioli, and this has been another episode of The Morning Shakeout Podcast. 